From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner and Director of Education, Eve Roberts. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AMP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. We are now in the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic. As the majority of NPs are employed in primary care settings, we are positioned to provide patients with education regarding COVID-19 vaccination. However, NPs may be caught off guard by the COVID-19 vaccination myths that circulate through social media and make their way into the clinical setting via our patients. Today's guests discuss common COVID-19 vaccination myths and concerns and how best to address them with your patients. Let's give a warm welcome to our two expert guests. I'm excited to bring you nurse practitioners, Dr. Ruth Carrico and Dr. Hudson Garrett. All right, thank you, Eve. We are delighted to be here today uh, with you. My name is Dr. Ruth Carrico. I am a family nurse practitioner and the executive director for the Norton Infectious Diseases Institute or Norton Healthcare in Louisville, Kentucky, and also gratis faculty with the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Louisville. I'm here today with my colleague, Dr. Hudson Garrett. Awesome, it's nice to be with you, Ruth. Uh, my name is Hudson Garrett. I'm actually based out of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, family nurse practitioner as well uh, with a background in infectious disease and infection prevention, um, and an adjunct assistant uh, professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. So I'm happy to be here with Hudson today. We've spent a lot of time in not only working with individuals who are uh, setting up vaccine clinics, administering vaccine, uh, all in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but we also have worked quite heavily in educating groups that are somehow involved in vaccine administration and developing um, interventions such as community listening centers so we can better understand the general public's consideration and questions regarding vaccine. And it helps us really recognize that as part of the, the COVID-19 response, we have two different realities. First, the healthcare workers, those of us that are seeing individuals that become infected with COVID-19, we are seeing the impact, we are also seeing the benefit of vaccines. And sometimes then we are dealing with individuals whose reality is very different. They may be around uh, groups where disease so far has either been very mild or even very limited. I even came across someone the other day and we were talking about the pandemic and they were unaware that we were in the midst of a pandemic. So many times in healthcare, it's hard for us to kind of understand the perspective of the entire population. So our time together today is to go through what we have been hearing, both from our professional colleagues as well as in the community, about some of the myths and the misinformation and misperceptions, misconceptions about the COVID-19 vaccines. And we hope then that we'll bring some information back to you that as an NP, you can use as part of your, your interventions. So Hudson, you want to get started with some of the things that you've heard? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of myths that we hear in, in the field, uh, whether we're in an inpatient or an outpatient setting. And I think it would make sense to go through some of the common questions that were asked and how to approach those with patients. 
So Ruth, I'll sort of throw this one at you because I think this is one we hear all the time. It's it's really the name, right? Especially mRNA. People think it implies that it's going to alter one's DNA. So what's the best way that we should handle that when a patient or a family member, rightfully so, ask a very legitimate question? Sure. And I think, you know, as a, as a nurse practitioner, we need to understand that the messenger RNA, the message actually the, the exchange of message occurs in the cytoplasm that is outside the cell nucleus. Now, we know the cell nucleus is where the DNA uh, is present. So we are giving and transmitting that message in an area of the cell that is completely different. And actually, the, the mechanisms of the messenger RNA vaccines do not have the capability to alter anything. Their sole job is carry the message be present for a short period of time while that message is conveyed, and then the, the messenger RNA degrades. So this does not have the capacity to alter anyone's DNA. So what I heard you say is it almost would make sense to also explain to the patient that once essentially the function of that medication is performed, that it's excreted from the body, right? It's actually not going to stay behind and be a remnant at all other than leaving the immune response. Correct, correct. All it is is a, a message deliverer. And that's right. it. Awesome. So I think, you know, one of the other questions we've heard a lot, right, is about pregnant women. And rightfully so. If we think about, you know, a mom who's trying to do everything in her power to keep that baby safe and keep herself safe, you know, about the unsafety profile, if you will, for a, a pregnant mom. And, you know, when we look at sort of the risk versus benefit equation, we know that the data has showed us over the almost the last two years that if a pregnant mom gets COVID and especially severe COVID, it's going to be a pretty negative outcome. For, for mom as well as for, unfortunately, for the baby. And so, you know, maybe we should consider thinking about that in, in the context of how do I lay that picture out for the patient to say, you know, if you were to get COVID, especially if you have another comorbidity, this could be pretty deadly. Um, however, but there may be a huge benefit for the vaccine. So what's the way that you address like the, the vaccine benefit versus the risk of getting COVID as a pregnant mom? I think, first of all, that we remind the, the pregnant woman that when you are pregnant, that is an altered state of immune competence. So you truly are immunosuppressed as part of, of pregnancy. So we need to protect the health of the mom because if the health of the mom is compromised, the health of that developing fetus is also compromised. So we know that all of the professional societies have said that the protection of the pregnant woman is paramount. So we have absolutely no evidence to support that the vaccine is problematic for a pregnant woman and everything is risk benefit. We look at the risk of the disease, the risk then of pregnancy, um, of that pregnancy if disease occurs. And we also know then that there is no, uh, no um, particular impact on the, the developing fetus from that vaccine. The mother is going to then be developing antibodies, which may be shared then with that baby. So we're not providing the baby, the developing fetus, the vaccine, but the fetus then will receive benefit from the development of those antibodies. So we always look at risk benefit. If the mother, if we have a pregnant woman that is in a situation where she is never around anyone else, she works from home, lives at home, no one ever comes into her home, there is no risk for her acquiring um, a covid coming in contact with the, the virus, then you may say, fine, then we, we don't see the purpose of that, that, that vaccine. But we know that that isn't the case. Uh, therefore, we need to be thinking about protection and recognize the vulnerability of that woman and her baby. 
So while we're on this same topic, I think it makes sense to talk about some of the other female health related issues, which, you know, we hear, especially in the news media, uh, a lot of hype about, well, this will alter my menstrual cycle or this will induce a miscarriage. And the, the wonderful thing is now that we're sort of a little bit more in depth into the pandemic, that we have a lot more data. Um, and so I think there's two things that I would share with that. One is that both with miscarriages and alteration of the menstrual cycle, that's not been something that's been observed um, significantly whatsoever. And the other valuable thing I think for the nurse practitioner is that, you know, we're trusted resources to our patients. We're trusted providers to them probably more than anybody else. And it's a good opportunity to also take that extra five minutes to counsel the, the mom and as well as, you know, the potential uh, spouse about, hey, let's report this information to VSAFE. Let's, let's get this data into the database so that that pregnancy registry is even more robust so that as more moms have this question, we can confidently answer some of these things with robust data that's been collected with a, a large cross-section. You know, I think your comment is, is right on target that, you know, there, there's probably no vaccine that has ever been studied more than these COVID vaccines. So when people talk about, you know, the lack of science, no vaccine has been, has been studied more. However, we still continue to have pockets of the population and pockets of, of, uh, of physiologic responses where we continue to need that data. Exactly. So, you know, we know that if someone develops COVID, that there is an alteration in your clotting mechanisms. We know that that happens as part of the disease. So it is not surprising then that we have seen some remnants of clotting questions with the vaccine because we're, we're using then that, that, that impact of that same protein and having the body then go through the processes of developing a recognition uh, for that virus. So we expect some crossover. All of the data that we have is minimal. So again, if we go back to risk benefit, that I have a disease that may kill me, um, I have a chance of developing infection, my risk of hospitalization is tremendous, especially if you have underlying health conditions. So how do we help people then balance that, that information? How do we then help them say, what is it that I can do to kind of understand my risk, my benefit, and then continue to stay in touch with their primary care or specialty provider? And then it's back on us. It's our responsibility then to say, okay, I recognize something that wasn't there prior to vaccination and report that to either CDC's Be Safe or to VAERS, that vaccine adverse events reporting system that any provider can report to, any patient can report, report to. Uh, if we don't continue to add that data, then we're not going to be able to address those questions that people have or the comments that say, well, we don't have enough history. We don't have enough data. So we need to all be you know, feeling that responsibility for that. So I think that actually leads nicely into sort of another set of questions that we commonly hear, which is, well, you know, this vaccine was just horribly rushed, right? It was something that came out so quick in this term emergencies authorization. So for the listeners that might not be uh, sort of familiar with that term, uh, an emergencies authorization is something that actually started after 9-11, really by FDA having an expeditious pathway, pathway to essentially get something onto the market that was really around a national emergency, whether that be bioterrorism or in this case, uh, a global pandemic. And so a couple of things to note about EUAs is, is one that they still follow a very rigorous pathway for approval, even though it's an emergency use authorization. Two is it has to be tied back to a declared national emergency by the Department of Health and Human Services, which, you know, if you think about sort of the, the housing arrangement, if you will, HHS 
is going to house CDC. They're going to house, you know, NIH and they're going to house FDA. I'm sorry, uh, FDA as well underneath that umbrella. So you do have some collaboration amongst those agencies. One of the other things is that the EUA is term limited. So it can only, you know, be in effect while that national emergency is in effect, which is why you're also seeing a lot of the manufacturers for the different vaccines we have here in the U.S. go through the regular approval process with even more robust data to your point. So why don't we maybe talk about sort of how these vaccines came to fruition? And and I think one thing to think about is that the, the traditional channels of safety and efficacy were still met. What was different here was that we had a huge sample size to choose from of individuals that it were being impacted by COVID-19. So it wasn't that there was any difficulty with trial recruitment. Um, and I think that's important for the patients to note. And so it's an opportunity for us as trusted professionals to say, let me walk you through this. And I know there was no rush other than the fact that we had an expeditious trial recruitment. And I think one of the other things, especially as part of Operation Warp Speed, was that you know the government allowed the manufacturers to make vaccine at risk um, from a manufacturing standpoint. So we were, we were making vaccine um, which is pretty unusual until it gets that that full FDA approval. So what are your thoughts on that and, and sort of patient counseling? Yeah, I think you're you're on, right on target that, you know, we have a defined process for bringing any drug to market, that it has to go through very rigorous stages. But with the COVID-19 vaccines, you know, remember that the COVID-19 vaccines got to jump ahead of the line for everybody. So when it came time to review and do perform the interim analysis at every phase, they got to go to the front of the line, you know, in front of every other drug and, and uh, every everybody else that was waiting. Also, there were people that were poised with expertise in data evaluation, uh, waiting to see the data. So, you know, there was a lot of that reduction in kind of what, what, what we typically think of that kind of bureaucratic red tape, waiting to get somebody in line, waiting for the drug companies then to have the resources to devote to development now, all this was done with assistance of the federal government as part of Operation Warp Speed. So really getting this up and going very quickly. I think in addition, um, we've also had the benefit of some prior experiences. You know, those of us that have been around a while, remember with the HIV epidemic, when we first saw AZT come to market, mm-hmm. that initial clinical trial showed such amazing impact that now we had that, that accelerated authorization. So we, we have done this for a number of other um, medications, but the key is, is it safe? That's what we have to make sure that it is safe and that the vaccine provides something that lack of vaccine does not. So we have to see not only is it safe, but does it make a difference? And, and as we know, we've had hundreds of candidate vaccines that have not made it very far because they didn't pass muster. So all of these processes have had the world's attention. Uh, We've had then everybody getting out of the way to make room then for rapid review and then movement forward. So I think the key messages are steps have not been sacrificed, but an element of speed has been added and the removal of some of the traditional delays and barriers because the world depends on this to get these vaccines reviewed and then if they work, get them to market. So it sounds like we've almost created an, an opportune learning opportunity, right? And, and a way by using this pandemic, and I know you and I sort of share a phrase of never let a good pandemic go to waste, <laughs> that it's a, a learning opportunity. So just to sort of summarize how we talk to the patient. So we can tell them confidently that the safety and efficacy sort of initial trials were conducted as normal. We also then did our combination safety and efficacy with the larger scale. But what I loved about what you said earlier was that 
there's an opportunity for the nurse practitioner to help contribute to the advancement of science by getting that patient's information into those databases and teaching them how to do that daily check-in with BeSafe. Or if we get a, an adverse event reported to us, we need to report that on behalf of the patient to the VAR system. So it, it, it's great that we have all of that up front, but it sounds like there's also a greater message that the NP can also help drive that post-market surveillance, which gives us the opportunity to figure out what's happening sort of long-term with these vaccines, which seems to be a very common question that we hear from patients. Yeah, yeah. I think also, you know, it enables, it positions the NP very distinctly to be heavily involved in patient education. You know, we hear a lot about adverse events and that we tend to put what you and I consider to be, you know, we, we've kind of developed the, this notion that we have expected immune responses and those differ from adverse events. But from a clinical trial perspective, anything that wasn't there before the vaccine was used uh, that is there after the vaccine has been administered falls under the general category of adverse events. But when we educate a patient, we let them know after you have this vaccine, the, the response your body goes through to begin to produce antibodies is going to require a lot of energy. Energy is heat. Heat is fever. So you may have low-grade fever. Also, the development of these antibodies is part of an inflammatory response. An inflammatory response may translate to, I have myalgias, I have you know, my, just achiness, my back, my lower back hurts me. Um, also, the energy that is required uh, translates to fatigue. So these types of things that oftentimes patients will tell me, well, the vaccine made me sick. I had a fever. I ached all over. I was sick from the vaccine. Instead, we do patient education to prepare them because what a patient experiences with one vaccine, they may in their mind translate to, well, this will happen to me. I'm allergic or I can't take other vaccines. So without our active education about these expected immune responses, our patients may get the wrong message and therefore may shy away from vaccines uh, to their detriment. And we could have perhaps changed that had we been more actively involved in patient education. So let's take two steps back in a way, because I, I think, you know, the way that you're speaking about this makes me think about sort of two distinct categories of our colleagues, right? We've got colleagues that are nurse practitioners that may even be brand new to the field, which is awesome. Congratulations, joining such a, a, a wonderful field, but they may not have the vaccine-related experience, for example, that you're speaking of. So it, it might make sense, especially for listeners that are not as integrated into the vaccine scene, if you will, to, to check out the resources that CDC has available. Um, there's vaccine sort of manufacturer-specific recommendations on the CDC and FDA website, but there's also various modules, training modules with CE attached to them that will get the nurse practitioner to a much higher level of, like you said, vaccine awareness, because the more that we're aware, the more of an advocate and sort of a sounding board we can be for our patients, right? But it really takes us sort of, you know, being able to do that. And that leads really nicely into, I think, our next question that we want to talk about, which is, you know, almost similar to what you said about the flu. You know, people get a flu shot and they say, oh, well, I got the flu. I feel terrible. The same is true with the COVID shot, I think, on a bigger level because it's such an immune response, which is great. I know when I got my COVID vaccine, I went home and I said, body, I want you to get sick. I want you to get that full response and I want you to mount it. Um, and to your point, giving that CDC handout that says, hey, this is what we expect to happen following this type of vaccine. And these are good signs. I like the fact that you said expected immune responses versus a side effect or an adverse event. Um, so, you know, one of the things that comes up frequently is 
Well, the vaccine, just like the flu shot, for example, is going to actually make me get COVID because it contains live virus. Well, we know that that's not true, right? And, and we know that as a profession, but how do we prove that to our patients without being adversarial? Right. And I think that some of this may actually have, have occurred because they may have information about the vector virus vaccines um, that, that we have. For example, the, the Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, uses a, an adenovirus as a carrier. It's almost like the message rides in on horseback. It's going in attached to that um, adenovirus that is unable to replicate. So that virus cannot make the individual ill. But yet when someone hears vector vaccine, they may be concerned that we are giving them something, some part of an illness. So we have to let people know that, you know, no one is is providing the um, COVID vaccine, uh, the COVID virus as part of the vaccine, not even attenuated or weakened. Like, you know, measles vaccine is attenuated. Varicella vaccine is attenuated. So none of these are live vaccines and don't have any components that can cause them to become physically ill with the virus itself. The side effects or adverse events that are uh, outside of those expected immune response are part of their bodies recognizing the virus, um, the component that spike protein to begin to develop those antibodies, and then how their body deals with the recognition and the development of antibodies. We know sometimes after a vaccine, you actually enter an immunocompromised state after vaccine uh, administration. So, you know, the host response is different across, you know, all of our, our people. And you may have, as, as you said, you know, we were happy when we had the, you know, the, oh, I recognize my immune response. We'll have other people that will say, wait, I didn't recognize that. Does that mean my vaccine didn't work? No, it does not. That every host has a different response. Now, having said that, some people may not be able to mount a good response. They have some immunocompromising condition that will prevent that from occurring. But we we man we will manage that very differently through the the booster uh, approaches and that third dose approach. And and I think we'll probably get to that a little bit later. So let's maybe even talk about that, especially for the listeners that have not been able to see the most recent webinar. That concept, like you said, of if I've got that immunocompromised state, um, we know that there may be multiple right you know, additional doses, third, third or fourth or fifth doses in some of the literature and, and individuals may not still mount any type of antibody response. So it, that's a patient counseling opportunity, right? To say, you know, we, we are uncertain as to how many or if, if there's any magic number that will, you know, a vaccine that will require you to or make you mount an immune response that would be sufficient as far as the antibodies. So we need to really focus with you on, on sort of steering clear of the opportunity to contract COVID given your suppressed immunocompromised state, right? Right. You know, this is what I kind of look at as our opportunity to almost focus on precision vaccination. That means we're looking at personalized medicine, personalized care. We understand our patient. We're looking at their underlying, not only underlying health conditions, but we're looking at their medication. Do they have that iatrogenic immunosuppression, the immunosuppression that occurs from medication that they are on? Perhaps they are on some type of, of monoclonal antibody for another underlying health condition uh, that uh, an autoimmune condition. You know, there are a number of, of, of these uh, situations where we know the individual needs additional doses of vaccine. Even those of us that are healthy, you know, take a look at, at our what has been in the past, our standard hepatitis B vaccine series. We had dose one, then we had dose two 30 days later, 
Then five months later, we got another dose that was designed to heighten our immune response to recognize then uh, antibody development. And then that provided us with memory or prolonged durability of the vaccine. That's what we're doing right now. We're giving individuals that are having trouble getting to that home run, you know, getting enough vaccine response. Those people are getting a third dose. That is they, an additional dose to their primary series of instead of two, it's three. The rest of us that have a competent immune system, we get a booster. Our third dose is a booster designed to take advantage of our, that home run we got with the first two doses and then give us another boost so that we recognize, develop memory and long-term durability. Now, the immunocompromised population who needed three doses to get to that home run stage they now will need a fourth dose that will act as their booster. So it is important that as a nurse practitioner, I'm sure many of us deal with, with individuals that have immunocompromising conditions. We need to make sure that we have clarity in our minds about what is the third dose? How does that differ from a booster dose? And then how are we managing the immunocompromised individual uh, as part of achieving then that, that recognized initial home run and then boosted home run for long-term durability. So when you said personalized medicine, it made me think of our colleagues that have been doing this for years in oncology, right? With sort of that genomic approach to medicine and looking at, you know, uh, rare cancers, especially in, in immunotherapy. I, what I like about sort of your approach is it's almost a way to create an individualized patient algorithm in your head or decision tree to say, you know, first of all, what's this patient's real risk for COVID? Uh, let's say that I've, I've got a friend, for example, that she works from home. Um, she doesn't really go anywhere. She's single. She has a dog. The dog is not going to give her COVID. Um, and she is very concerned about vaccines in general. And so she may make a decision, for example, because she's not exposed. She really doesn't go anywhere. She's been one of those that's used Instacart and stuff to bring groceries in. Um, for her, it may be a decision that she says, I don't have a risk to get COVID. Um, whereas somebody, you know, that's a healthcare worker, right, is going to have to go into those settings because most of us are not able to work from home. So it, it, I, I like that approach in thinking about, you know, how do we sit down and have a conversation with the patient, right? And I'm a huge whiteboard person. I know you do as well. You like to write things that we like to draw. And I found that if you have a little whiteboard um, and you just ask the patient, get the patient the marker and say, write down your questions. What are your concerns? And then visually, as you address those, you ask the patient, you know, have we covered everything on this question that you wanted to know? Are there any other unanswered questions that you have? And then you have the patient mark that off. And so at the end of the conversation, that counseling session, maybe it takes 10, 15 minutes, but there's nothing left on the whiteboard, right? <laughs> All of our questions are being answered. And I think, uh, you know, another thing, and we've seen this come out through some of the CDC data as well, is that they're going to ask us as the provider, have we been vaccinated, right? So if I were to come into your office, Ruth, and say, well, okay, Dr. Carico, have you, have you gotten vaccinated? Which one did you get? And you looked at me and said, no, I've not been vaccinated pretty quickly as the patient, I'm going to say, well, wait a minute, what does she know that I don't know? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, your, your points are, I think, critical for nurses because, you know, every year uh, the Gallup poll recognizes nurses as the most trusted profession. And remembering that patients hear what we say, they hear our silence just as loudly. So if we don't talk about these issues with them, they'll build this story in their mind. And one of the things we have learned from having these community-based listening sessions is that if we go into these sessions 
with the desire to listen and understand the perspective of the individual who has been hesitant to receive vaccine. That is a very different approach than if we go in to listen, but right by us, we have a little cooler with the vaccine in it. Because what we're saying to them is, I'm going to listen to you, but I'm going to change your mind so you agree with me. If instead we are trying to understand where that person is, it's sort of like, you know, in nursing, we go back to uh, Madeline Linegar's uh, transcultural nursing theory, you know, oh, getting wow. where people are. <laughs> I know it's taken us back to, to uh, theory, but it is important that we understand and we go to where the person is, not necessarily geographically, but where they are with respect to their health decision making. And a demonstration of our willingness to listen and understand is to ask the question, be quiet while the person responds, listening fully to what they are saying and not in, you know, while they're talking in our mind, we're thinking of how am I going to change their approach? We're actually listening to them and know that we may not, we may not have an impact the first time, but, you know, just like we continue with smoking time after time after time, we're still going to be asking them these questions, but it's going to be in a way that respects their right to make a decision, their human right to make a decision that they feel is best for them. Our job is to make sure that we are providing them with the information so they can make a decision that is informed for them. So it goes back to, you know, we have a number of the, the, these um, uh, mnemonics for how we talk with a patient, how we communicate, how do we share information, aim and share. And these are, you know, some of those mnemonics, all of those are based upon the fact that we intend to change the patient's mind. The idea that I think from nursing is we need to understand that the patient respects us. We respect the patient. Now let's listen to them and then develop a plan of action that's based upon accurate information. I think that's where we're going to get the best outcomes. You know, and it makes me think of sort of a medical and a non-medical example. Um, you know, if we think back years ago where and it was pretty recently where there was sort of a, a national recommendation to do annual HIV testing. Right. It's just part of our annual physical exam. And it didn't go so well. Um, and I think to your point, it, it didn't go so well because we didn't have that approach, like you said, of that individualized counseling. Because, you know, if you were to ask my parents, for example, who've been married for almost four years to get annual HIV testing, I think they would be highly offended um, just because they, they are in a relationship together. And, and, and if without that proper context, to your point, it's difficult. So if this is a mom that is the sole breadwinner for three children, um, you know, there's a risk not only medically, but financially. Right. If something were to happen to her. And so it's our, our, our job and our, I think, our obligation to help the patient look at their big picture. And we serve as almost like a Sherpa, right, of vaccine information to help them make whatever's that best decision for their family. And I think this is a, becomes a health equity issue, that every patient has equal opportunity for best practice care. And that in order to do that, we need to understand our patient. We need to understand their barriers, their risks, their benefits. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk to a mother that is pregnant and she's concerned. You know, I want to breastfeed. I, you know, I've really thought this is kind of against, you know, everybody in my family is always bottle fed. I want to breastfeed. Now I'm concerned if I get the COVID vaccine, can I breastfeed my child? So this is a chance for us to, to change, um, practice and change the habit or the culture by addressing more than one um, activity at a time. Yes, we can say this is great, breastfeeding, wonderful for a number of reasons for you and the baby. And then no, the vaccine will not prevent that. You do not have to uh, stop breastfeeding. That is going to be important for the, the long-term health of mom and baby. 
So you, you brought up a term that I think is always hot, um, especially here lately, which is health equity, right? And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong from your perspective, but I can't see another thing really that we've done in medicine, at least in my lifetime, that has been more equitable than providing this vaccine free of charge, right? You know, the vaccine free of charge, testing available widespread through our public health uh, folks. So it doesn't matter if you have commercial insurance or you don't, the vaccine has been made available to anyone that is, is willing to receive it. What I think is a missed opportunity is that counseling, like you said. Mm -hmm. And so that's one, I would say, almost disadvantage of some mass vaccination sites is it's a mass throughput. It's a mass production. Um, and you don't necessarily have all of that time. So, you know, the use of technology, I know you and I were discussing at breakfast this morning about even using things like QR codes to bring information to the different audiences. Now, if you gave a QR code to my parents, they would probably laugh and say, what is this? Um, but if you gave it to the average patient that was, you know, uh, certainly 20 to 40, most likely their experience with that and they'll pull out their camera and, and do it. But for once, this is almost like an EMTALA thing, right? Where we're going to treat, stabilize everybody. We're going to vaccinate anyone who wants to be vaccinated. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that. You know, it says a lot about bringing this into the right places. Now, you know, when we especially look at future vaccination rollouts, we'll want to make sure that the vaccines are mobile, right? That they can go into the communities that are most needed. I know you did an amazing um, you know, sort of ongoing project with Luvax in, in Louisville, Kentucky, where, you know, you essentially took over Civic Center um, and provided that, but your operation and sort of your mode of operation afforded everybody an opportunity to be involved if they wanted to be, but it also gave the patients a conduit to ask those questions, right? And you think that's pretty important. Yeah. So when we think about then health equity, I can have um, uh, events or I can uh, make vaccine accessible in a variety of places, but it needs to be accessible to the entire community and it needs to be accessible in a way that trust is present. So again, the, the vital role of nurse practitioners in both understanding the vaccine, understanding their patient population, and then using the creative approaches that nurses have to come up with new ideas to get that information into the community. So when asked by community leaders, what is it that we can do differently? This is an opportunity for nurse practitioners to step up and then both stop the, the sharing of misinformation because there is a lack of someone knowledgeable within that community, and then be able to take advantage then of what we do when we do this type of information sharing. So it sounds like we really need to use the MP role as almost like a champion role, right? To, to be that, that sounding board, that listening post. And I, I remember my grandmother told me as a young child that God gave us two ears and, and one mouth for a reason, so that we could listen more attentively. And, and I know that it's, we live in a digital world right, where the MP is going to be bombarded with lots of different things. So, you know, reputable sources make a huge difference. And I think that's a great transition point into a couple of vac or vaccine related topics that I want to tie together, which is, you know, what is actually in, in the vaccine? Um, you know, and, and so I'll sort of think about a couple that come to me and then we'll talk about some that you've heard as well. And probably the top one for wherever this is coming from, I don't know, is that if I get the vaccine, I'm going to be embedded with a tracking device. Right. And, and to a degree, I can understand where these questions come from, because, you know, if we have, you know, we all have Alexas and all this other stuff and it's, it's listening to us. Right. And, it, and it's sort of customizing our experience, like the types of music. And I even know that sometimes I'll say something, then I'll go on Facebook and lo and behold, there it'll be, um, which I know gets you and I in trouble because we sometimes like to shop. But, you know, it's important to note that we need to stop and listen sort of intently to our patients when they have those questions um, so there's no tracking shift. There's no, it's not going to make us magnetic. It's not going to 
um, you know, I already have a magnetic personality, so I don't need to change that. Um, and so there's really no founded, um, you know, science behind that whatsoever. And again, you know, we've got to figure out what does the patient really trust? Because often I will hear, well, we don't trust the federal government. We don't trust the CDC. We don't trust the FDA. And, you know, I think we would be lying if we said that any of the parties involved in the COVID response have done a perfect job, right? There's no such thing as perfect, especially in public health. But we have seen a tremendous amount of advancement of science. Um, you know, I'm so thrilled that we have treatment modalities and testing, uh, both for surveillance as well as just presence of detection. And we've also got, you know, a, a series of vaccines that are highly effective at preventing severe disease, right? So what are some of the other things that you've heard, especially I know about like fetal tissue in there with, with certain religious uh, backgrounds? Yeah, so we, we have spent a lot of time um, having nursing groups go into local communities and find those groups that are influencers in communities. And certainly the churches, faith-based organizations are tremendous um, in influencing then and establishing a, a base for credible care. Um, we know that there has always been questions since the MMR vaccine um, back in the, the 50s um, originated with the use of fetal tissue. That was years ago. Um, and, you know, that was a, that was a different time. Um, it, are the COVID vaccines made with fetal tissue? Uh, no, there are no direct embryonic, no fetal lines that have been used to directly develop these vaccines. So let's, let's sort of transition into sort of a last bucket of areas that we want to talk about, um, which is, you know, and this one is probably the most common that I hear. And, and these are, you know, friends and colleagues that say, well, but Hudson, I had COVID, right? So why do I need to get a vaccine? And I know there was a recent study that came out um, from CDC through their, their science brief in November that essentially said natural immunity and vaccine-produced immunity were essentially equivalent to a period of at least six months, right? So let's sort of take that out of the equation and say it's been six months. What in your mind is the best way to talk to a patient, especially one, let's just say, that has some chronic comorbidities that we know are tied back to increased mortality and morbidity? How do we get them to a point of, of realizing that there probably is still some benefit at least at getting one dose, even if it's not the full series, but at least getting the vaccine. So it, it kind of falls along um, when we talked about boosting, giving that long-term memory. So there are a couple of things to consider. Those uh, individuals who were infected with what we're calling that this ancestral strain or the first SARS-CoV-2 that we saw in early 2020, that was before the Delta variant, they had then immunity that was prompted by that SARS-CoV-2 exposure, um, which is dissimilar, as we know, from the Delta strain and will be dissimilar from other variants that we know will, will continue to emerge. So they may have uh, immunity, but it is going to be, you have to consider it to be partial immunity. And also, we don't know how long, we don't know the durability. And we know just from our experiences with, with viral illnesses, if you have rubiola, that, that virus produces long-term, lifelong immunity. Influenza, another virus, does not. So not all viruses are the same. So you can't assume that once I had COVID, I'm immune for life, that we know that is not true. So how do we then use vaccine to provide that boosted effect so we can try to prompt your immune system's memory so that you have a durability of, of an immune response? That's the whole purpose in getting that 
that vaccine after having received COVID. Because again, our public health strategy is let's reduce the number of individuals who are reservoirs for infection. If we do that, we have fewer places for the virus to hide, fewer places for the virus to develop a new variation or a new variant. And then that knowing that variant could then cause yet another surge of disease. So we're trying to look at this not only from an individual perspective, but a population-based perspective. So this is an opportunity to say, I care about my community. I know that everybody, regardless of the color of your skin, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, your social conventions, your political leanings, everybody is impacted by this virus. No one is protected and no one is immune. So we're in this together. So we're asking people to do something that you may not be fully committed to. You may not want to be vaccinated. You may be afraid of needles. You may have a lot of fear, but we're asking you to overcome that, to do something not only for yourself, but for your community at large. So this is a larger social good issue as well. And so who better than nurses to push that social good message forth to be able then to completely engage communities. And again, as you mentioned earlier, we've got to lead by example. So, you know, you sort of waded into some water, which I think is important for us to address and sort of part the misconceptions, which is, is really the value and utility of the vaccine in general. So let's just take the sort of worst case scenario of a patient that had severe COVID, right? Successfully recovered um, and is now sort of uh, wavering back and forth on the decision of whether or not to be vaccinated or not. Um, you know, we even know there's going to be breakthrough infections, right? Even with those that are vaccinated. And it's important to note that initially CDC looked at all sort of the aggregate numbers of, of breakthrough infections. And then uh, this past summer, they changed that to look at hospitalized or, or unfortunately patients that died. And if we look at the total number of fully vaccinated individuals, or even, you know, U.S. citizens or that have gotten one dose, um, we know that the proportion of breakthrough infections is extraordinarily low which tells us that, to your point, there's not only good utility and efficacy and safety, but there is a fairly good durability of, of these vaccines. And, and it, which is why, you know, sort of that six-month point, we want, want to consider um, those additional booster doses. But one of the other things that comes up, too, is that, you know, we don't have any experience with these vaccines before. And I think you touched on it with viral vector, that this is obviously a technology that we've got lots of experience with. But even mRNA technology, we've been using for almost 20 years with other different modalities so we, it's, we do actually have a fairly good amount. It's just never been used on a large scale, but there's some advantage manufacturing-wise, right, to be able to produce these vaccines quickly, safely, and get them out and into the marketplace where the folks need it um, at the front line. So I think that's definitely something. So what about allergies, right? And I, I know that we've had a lot of folks that have said, well, I'm allergic. And I think my favorite correlation is I'm allergic to penicillin. And we've all seen the study that's come out multiple times that says about 90% of penicillin allergies are not real. Um, I know I had a penicillin allergy as a child. Actually, my mom almost died from an anaphylactic reaction. And when I had my sinus surgery, I had a visit with an allergist. And I just asked him, I said, hey, just, I'm just curious, would you mind testing me for a penicillin allergy? He said, absolutely. And I'm no longer allergic and since taken penicillin and it worked fantastically. So we've got to think about what truly is an allergy right? Almost like that expected immune response. You know, what happened when you had that vaccine or what happened? Did you, did you faint? Did you get a little bit red? Did your arm hurt? Um, I know that one of the common things with the mRNA vaccines is people said my arm really hurt. Um, you know, mine was probably less than that of a, a Tdap. 
Um, but I was expecting it, right? And and so you could take those those steps associated. So is there really any contraindication for like eggs or anything like that that we should be aware of with these vaccines? No, I think you know our our big issue was if someone has ever had an anaphylactic reaction to a prior dose of any vaccine. Now this is anaphylactic reaction. Um, this isn't the I I had a syncopal episode. Or so we've got to qualify or whatever. It. Yes, we've got to understand what that means that they may be one of the very, very few people that have vaccines to one of those preservatives or stabilizers. Well, we have no preservative in these vaccines, um, but the stabilizers that we have, that polyethylene glycol, mm-hmm. that may be the same thing if someone had an anaphylactic reaction after they had Miralax or a, a prep for their colonoscopy. So, you know, we know that that is exceptionally rare. We're looking at, you know, less than one in a million um, we take that seriously. And so if that occurs, then, you know, as we gain more experience, we are looking at what other vaccines we might be able to do. Maybe we can't give an mRNA vaccine. Maybe we'll be able then to give one of the vector uh, vaccines, maybe, um, uh, maybe that approach. As we see more vaccines coming to market in the U.S., I think we're expecting Novavax, another uh, an adjuvant vaccine that probably will be available in the U.S. Uh, before too long. Um, and we have several others that are lining up. So we'll have some of these options to provide. But, you know, take it seriously when, you're, when your patient talks with you about, about allergy. Now, I had a, a friend that told me she had a patient that came into our, our office and said, well, I'm allergic to messenger RNA. Okay, well, no, the patient isn't, but that's what they said. So, you know, are you going to fight over that? Or are you going to say there's something that patient was trying to give me a message that they're giving me a, a definite no it's a hard at this no. point, right? It's a hard no. And that we're going to have to, you know, maybe now isn't the time to approach that. Now we can kind of take another way about talking about, you know, the, the risk of that person to COVID disease. And now let's figure out what what ways, and this may be something that you say, okay, if you become sick, then you need to let me know right away because I'm going to need to know how do we get you into an infusion center and you may meet criteria for one of the monoclonal antibodies that may keep you from dying from that, that infection. Now, it doesn't take the place of vaccination, but you've kind of got plan B in, in place with this person. And then over time, just like you're going to talk about smoking cessation, if that person is a smoker with every visit, you're going to be bringing up, let me tell you what's new on the vaccination front. You know, that over time, I think, you know, we need to recognize that people are going to give us whatever reason they think may, may get them out of that a potentially contentious situation. But don't set up the conversation so you back the patient in the corner and they don't have a way out. You know, always think about how can I give them a way out to come out of that corner if and when um, they reach a point that they can change their mind. So, you know, you also brought up and, and I'll just use myself as the example. When I went and got my my third dose, um, I went to a, a national pharmacy brand um, and was given the vaccine in the waiting room uh, in front of 10 other patients sitting in a chair. And then I was immediately allowed to leave. Right. And, and to me, as somebody who knew better, that that built a little bit of mistrust. And I, I like the fact that you also brought up the fact of sort of being prepared. Right. I'm a huge person into emergency preparedness. Um, you know, I'm somebody who drives around with an AD in their car um, just because it will be me that will probably need that at some point. I used a fire extinguisher last year and put out a car fire or last week and put out a car fire. But if we don't have NPs that are prepared for those potential serious adverse events and we let our patients have the confidence that we're there, we're trained, we're ready to respond, 
should they have that one in a million response and holding those patients, like you said, that have had a previous history of anaphylaxis for 30 minutes, right? And making sure we've got those resources are available. You know, the other thing to think about too is that especially populations like pregnant moms, those that are breastfeeding, those with comorbidities, these are populations that really need this vaccine in order to keep their families as safe as possible. Um, so there's, there's a lot to be said for that. So let's sort of finish with the last couple of questions that, um, you know, folks have asked us, which is really all about what the vaccines do and then how they came to be. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of start with how the vaccines came to be. There's, there's a lot of questions, especially in faith communities, like you mentioned, with different demographics that'll say, well, you know, was there somebody who was African-American? Was there somebody who was Latino? Well, was there somebody who was over 50 in that, in that study population? And, and what I love about the FDA sort of publication strategy is they publish everything, right? With the exception of, of something that's proprietary, um, pretty much anything you can access. And I, I remember that I've got sort of the charts of, you know, okay, how many Hispanics were in this? Um, how many people were over 55? How many people had chronic comorbidities? Because we just don't want to look at healthy populations. So that, that data is available on the ft.gov website. And I would encourage our MP colleagues to go and pull it down, have that on your computer, have that available as a handout. Is there any other way that you've used to sort of make patients feel like everyone was included in the development of this vaccine from a safety and efficacy standpoint. I think you're right in that bringing up the data. Now, if we just look at the trajectory of what happened with vaccines, you know, from the very beginning, Moderna was the first vaccine, mRNA vaccine on the kind of on the watch. Uh, They were plowing forward. Um, Pfizer was, you know, right behind or right beside them. Pfizer began then to look at, all right, and I think probably there was some discussion about, you know, how should we do this as a national strategy? Moderna stopped and was doing a lot of the evaluation among different populations. So looking at some of the, how many uh, African-American, how many Hispanic, what is our proportion of individuals involved in clinical trials and really focused on that. I know that my site, um, my university was a site for the the Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And we were given very specific criteria that, nope, we have enrolled enough of people in this age group or enough from this demographic or this race just to make sure that there was attention to inclusion. Um, We have a lot to make up for. You know, a lot of people still have history of Tuskegee and will remember when some of the atrocities that have occurred with respect to just the human approaches to care and research. We can't change history, but we can change the future. And I think there's very much been a focus on trying to make sure that we are talking about this with all populations. So for our NP uh, 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 colleagues that are involved in uh, clinical research, whether it's a clinical trial or investigator initiated uh, clinical research, you know, if we don't include and make a, a concerted effort to include all populations in research, this will continue to be a struggle. That, you know, is our, are our data representative of the entire population? Uh, but at the same time, remembering that I think somebody, you know, an article that I read that, you know, we are, you know, just a, a very small per percentage of, you know, one, three one hundredths of a difference of our genes uh, make up the difference between a human and a banana. Well, so if you start telling me that, that we have differences then, major differences in the you know, in races. Well, no, I mean, that's, that is not something that is present. What is, what really is the difference is the acceptance of vaccine and the underlying health conditions that have occurred from an inability to 
have good, decent health care or value decent health care. That's what's making the difference. So then we go back to you know, health equity. Let's get all of our patients involved in routine health care, continuing to do what NPs across the United States are doing, and that is we are providing the predominance of primary care, especially in rural America. And so continuing that wave of being then not only the provider for um, a majority of our population, but also the most trusted profession. When we combine these two things together, we have the power to change the outcome of this pandemic through acceptance of vaccination and dispelling of those myths. It is our responsibility. It is our promise, our covenant we have made with our patients to do just that. So I think that the sort of last area that we want to discuss in closing it is really what does the vaccine do for us, right? And we know that one of the major reasons that patients as well as healthcare providers like ourselves have taken the vaccine is to prevent death, right? To prevent death, the development of severe disease, to certainly reduce mortality and morbidity. But we also recognize that the vaccine is not fully effective, right? It's not going to necessarily prevent every single breakthrough infection. But what we have seen is a couple of benefits. One is that that breakthrough infection is usually much more rare and mild. Uh, we know that the development of long COVID syndrome is much more decreased um, and certainly can provide more of that community protection for those that are not vaccinated, right? And sort of that term uh, of herd immunity. But one of the other things that people ask all the time is, well, why do I still have to wear a mask? Um, and, and so if you're you know, dealing with a community and your practice area that is very high with community transmission, um, just due to the risk of potential breakthrough infection. That's why we continue to see that. And I really don't anticipate, at least through the, the fall and winter, that CDC will change that, right, until we get through the holidays and see what those trends are. Um, but the other thing, too, is that the vaccines are still effect, uh, pretty effective against the variants, right? So we still got lots of uh, protection. We do. And I think that's where we need to, I think, uh, um, come to grips with that fact as a profession. Our responsibility is to prevent transmission either from us or certainly to us. And uh, this is a disease that we know is a respiratory droplet that uh, someone will cough in our face uh, or we will touch a surface and touch our own mouth, eyes, nose, uh, and then auto inoculate, recognize the modes of transmission and then figure out how we need to prevent that from occurring. When we are looking at influenza and right now we do not know the impact of a co-infection season where we have this, uh, an opportunity for a twin surge or a twin epidemic or sin epidemic, I think is the, the current term. We don't know how one virus impacts the other. We know that there is some impact and we knew that just from you know, the last few months, we've seen a tremendous surge in adult respiratory syncytial virus. Usually we don't see that. Um, so what happens? So we know that that viruses impact other viruses. Uh, we are learning uh, what, what the effect of, of bringing this new coronavirus into the mix. We're still learning. So we're trying, to be, we're trying to be watchful. And so I appreciate that approach from CDC to say, all right, when you're in a healthcare setting where you need to be careful, not only uh, from transmitting something to your patient, you're in a high risk setting to acquire something from your patient, make sure that you're wearing your mask. In public, we may not have those same considerations. So we're seeing then a loosening of those requirements in the public. Uh, we're trying to encourage vaccination among our children, perhaps reducing the reservoir from children who are very adept at sharing among, you know, the, the pediatric communities. Our little, you know, there are little Petri dishes. Our, you know, they are, God love them. And uh, so we're doing a number of those actions 
that we think then will bring a reduction to this virus. Truth be told, this is now a virus that will be endemic in our community. This will be an ongoing struggle. So uh, COVID has not gone away. This coronavirus has not gone away. We are having to learn how to coexist. And so that will be our challenge and the reason for continuing to have programs such as this among our NP colleagues so that we're aware, we know what people are asking, we know what the comments they are making, we develop ways to address them, and then we think about how we are going to use the trust the public has in us, our expertise as advanced practice uh, providers, and bring all that together to ultimately make a difference in our communities. So it sounds like, you know, in this this past hour, we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about sort of how the vaccines came to be. Uh, we've talked about how those vaccines were tested, both for safety and efficacy, and our responsibility as MPs to provide that post-market surveillance input right, with our patients. We, we've discussed some of the most common myths that patients are likely to ask. And I, I think one of the consistent themes that's been brought out is the value of listening to education, but also just having a dialogue with the patient and coming at it from an open frame of reference and meeting that patient where they are. Um, for NP colleagues that are looking for additional tools and resources, would certainly invite you to visit the AMP website, but also go to the CDC website as well as the FDA, and you'll find a host of information one of the most useful tools I've found is also the healthcare provider handout available for each of the vaccines on the FDA.gov website. Um, so at this point, we're going to turn the program back over to Eve. And Eve, we really appreciate the opportunity to share this message with our empty colleagues across the country. Thanks, Eve. Thank you, Hudson and Ruth, for sharing your wealth of knowledge on this extremely important topic. I know that I've learned so much from this segment. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 119,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AAMP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AAMP CE Center with hundreds of free CE. If you want to learn more about COVID-19 vaccination and earn continuing education credit, visit the AAMPCE Center at aamp.org forward slash CE Center. The CE activity on COVID-19 vaccination with Ruth and Hudson is linked in the show notes. Mm-hmm.